Good morning, High Point Church. Glad to see you this morning. Our scripture reading today is from Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 10. If you are looking in the Pew Bible, that's on page 1774. And if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take the one that you're reading from and make it yours. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please from the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap the harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Thanks, Joy. Thanks, Joy. Hopefully you got one of these Technopoly cards on your way in. Um, some of you will have to use a magnifying glass. Um, the people who don't are probably the ones who need it the most, the younger people, disproportionately. Um, we're doing this series called Technopoly, which is focusing on the general monopoly that certain dynamics related to te- technology in our world have over our lives, and how they are in some ways very opposed structurally in what they produce to the way of life the master Jesus gives to his disciples, those who believe in him. And so I said last week that the four things I wanted to do in the series is one, um, to see and flee the technopoly, to see what's actually happening, to stop minimizing it, and deal with it negatively. Positively, to see that Jesus, who is our master, has disciples who he gives a way of life to. We need to actually pursue that way of life positively, right? And that means when it comes to digital stuff in our lives, we have to have an extreme intentionalism and even an asceticism right? And then secondly, we have to actually learn how to practice walking in the way of Jesus in the culture in which we live in. Now, in box number three, it says faith, time, formation, and love. This week, I'm going to do time. I'm going to do faith next week because actually it's a little bit more complicated than talking about time, and I wanted to do this one first. So let's let's jump in. Um, For a lot of folks, um, you know that in, in the American church, especially in evangelical churches, especially um, churches a little bit like this one, either the Sunday right before or right after the Martin Luther King holiday is referred to as Sanctity of Life Sunday. Now, in most churches populated by people of Caucasian descent, um, this focuses on the injustice of abortion, which is one of the massive, global, and maybe greatest injustice happening on planet Earth. However, there are a lot of other offenses to the sacredness of human beings. Some churches will focus on racism. You could focus on globalism. You could focus on cobalt mining. You, there's all kinds of things that you can be aware of. Um, but one of the questions that perennially comes up is, we keep having this Sunday. The world still waits to be perfect. There are a lot of injustices that, or, and, and just problems that all of us see as offensive to the sanctity of human beings' lives. Human beings are not being treated the way they should be treated, right? What they deserve as bearers of the, of the image of God is withheld, or doesn't exist, or isn't offered to them. Why is that the case? Why do we wait? Right? Um, that question is, is maybe more complicated than it seems. We human beings are really good at transferring blame. Generally speaking, when we emotionally answer that question, usually we're thinking through a few options that are put forward by a news media to us that are pushed by either one group of pundits or another. We tend to think of the government or the globalists or people like that. 
Um, or if we've personally bumped into some people that have some power that have not treated us the way we'd like. My wife was recently cussed out by somebody at, on an IRS phone call who thought that she had her on hold. So we're not huge fans of the IRS at this moment, right? So like there's things like that. Like if you have a personal experience with some system of power, right? You'd be like, well, these people are the problem. But one of the things we have to keep coming back to is this. There's something like 260 million adults in America. Okay? We're the richest and freest we've ever been in the history of the world. How can there be a problem we can't solve? How many trillions of dollars and how many billions of man hours do we have at our fingertips? Like on some level, yes, we need to take really seriously globalism and systemic injustice and governmental problems and overspending and all these sorts of things. But we are really prone as human beings to shift the blame from ourselves. There is good at our fingertips to do every day. And what human beings in America prove with the use of their time, one of the most fundamental realities of being a creature is everything we do is based on our use of the expiring resource of time, we show that almost everything is more important to us than doing good. One of the things that, um, one of the books I read last year was a book called Cry the Beloved Country. It was written in the 1940s about life in um, South Africa and about how um, what tended to happen, especially to black youth in the countryside of South Africa, is they would go to Johannesburg because it was the big city. There would be lots of opportunities, but the housing they ended up in in those particular neighborhoods were just riddled with, like, crime and alcohol and drugs and sex. And it was just a perfect beehive of personal corruption. And so people would go for opportunities, and then they'd end up in a place just shaped for personal corruption. They would fall into that personal corruption and end up in prison or murdered or something like that. And part of the tragedy of this was that there were things that could have been done for those youth. And there's this older, like, South African um, Afrikaner who's like a, a Dutch descent white guy. And after this young man kills somebody and gets hanged for it, this black priest's, Zulu priest's father, he realizes there's always been more he could have done for his neighbors. And so even though his son was the one that was murdered in Johannesburg, and murdered by this Zulu priest's son, they get together and they build this dam that can hold water so they can continue to water the countryside that keeps falling into drought so that it can flourish. And people start to come back and people start to get excited about their life in their town. And he, and he realizes you can—Pat never actually says this in the novel, but he, you can tell that this Afrikaner, he knows he always could have done this. He doesn't have to even do it now. Nobody's making him do it. It's not anybody's right to force him to do it. But it's a good work that now he realizes he could do, and now he also realizes he could have done. There's this old Afrikaner woman in Johannesburg in this monastery who's a widow, and he's, she's serving this African Zulu priest while he's looking for his son who's lost. And she's doing all this stuff, and he doesn't know why she's, help, she's helping him. And he finally says, woman, why, why, do you, why are you doing all this for me? And she says, I'm here to serve others. What else are we here for? That's a very different way of looking at life. 
than most of us implicitly have, whether we want to say so or not. Like, like, do we walk through life thinking, how can I serve? Like, what else are we here for? It's amazing how fast things change among peoples, especially when they get stuff. If you go even back just to the 1950s, only a few thousand American households even had TVs, and there was almost no money spent on consumer goods in America. She didn't have any. We got food, we paid for our houses, that's about it. Then Europe was completely destroyed by bombs. We began to learn how to manufacture things. Hundreds and hundreds of different crap came forward that we could buy. Things that saved energy, dishwashers and stuff like that. We got color television, and our lives really changed. When I was a kid, I was in Boy Scouts, and they gave us this like little copper coin that said on it, do a good turn daily. And every Boy Scout or Cub Scout was supposed to put it in their left pocket in the morning and just be looking for some good thing you could do during the day. And when you did it, you could put the, put the coin in your other pocket. And you did that every single day. Why? Because we were teaching little boys that what it looked like to be men was to go out in the world thinking, why else are we here than to serve? What else am I supposed to do? You see, once you become functionally not a servant, but a consumer, then everything that's not the way you want it to be is an inconvenience and an irritation. I don't know how many people I know who they just don't seem happy. And it's not because they don't have a lot of crap. It's because they're a consumer in their heart. That's what they really are. They're a, they're a, a muncher and liquor of the earth. And so whenever anything isn't just the way they expect it to be, everything's an irritation to them. Every server in the restaurant, every food that they're served, everything that they have to do, every parking space they can't find, it's an irritation. Even their brothers and sisters, even their own children or their parents, interrupting their lives, asking something from them. Right? There's this one comedian who's talking about when her, her daughter hit puberty, she's like, we were terrified of her. She was mean, 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 mean. And then she's like, and look, I don't judge. She had a lot on her. She had to, you know, empty the dishwasher and whatnot. You know? It's amazing how, like, you, how self-centered you get. Like, we make fun of teenagers because they're kind of in this moment of life where they're, like, differentiating themselves. They're kind of focused on who they're trying to be. And they can be really selfish, like ugly selfish, right? It's amazing how much we are imitating them, right? A lot of them are going to grow out of it. We're supposed to show them how, Right? And it leads to a culture where once you think everything should be the way you want it and everything's an inconvenience and an irritation, that whenever anybody asks anything of you, you, instead of being like, well, what am I here for than to serve? You think they're taking advantage of you because that's how you feel. Like you want to get ahead. So you think they're trying to get ahead. And whenever anybody needs something, they're cheating the system. They're trying to get ahead. They're trying to take advantage of you. Right? Now, you can see this kind of— um, Sometimes people give up on serving others when things are so bad that they feel like they can barely survive. But the thing is, is that decadence has its own way of causing us to think our life is about something other than service. I mean, decadence, in a sense, is wealth received and used in such a way as that we forget our responsibility. You see, to Jesus, everything that we have has built into it a responsibility of beauty and love and goodness. Everything moves forward naturally into something else. Everything is connected and means something. And so everything is naturally related. And so you, you could never have wealth and not responsibility to Jesus. 
right? But what decadence is, is that when we have wealth, and so we feel free to be consumers with our money and our time and all of our resources, and when anybody interrupts that process, we get upset. Nobody should. And what that leads to is is a society that slowly, concentrically falls apart. We don't want to serve each other. We get more selfish. We don't want to have to share. We don't want to have to share institutions. We don't trust each other. It breaks down faster and faster. In the United States, service, just volunteering, has been declining very rapidly since the middle of the 1960s. Just in the years 2019 to 2021, volunteerism fell by 7%. Now, that sounds like a COVID number, right? But you know, it's amazing for some people, the, the COVID disease was a real danger. It was a real danger. And people had to like be real careful, right? And that's about probably less than 10% of people. For the vast majority of us, it actually wasn't, statistically speaking. And there were a lot of folks that used COVID as a super convenient opportunity to live more selfishly. It was a great opportunity for that. Medical reasons are a wonderful reason, even if they're terrible reasons. You should see some of the people that volunteer in hospitals and in places getting there on their canes and walkers because they're going to do something productive if it kills them. Because what are we here for if we're not here to serve? Right? This statue um, is the Shriner statue. They, those people wear some funny hats. Um, it's outside the, um, the Tampa— Shriner Hospital. My wife and I walked by it the first time because when we went to our fancy state hospital that our health insurance paid for, the medical doctor there that was really good at fixing multi-million dollar athletes' knees told us that our disabled son was never going to walk. He referred to him as a sitter without ever examining him. And so we, my wife mainly, fired him, however that works, and we went to this place that, that like, these old white men who drive the little cars had spent hours and hours and hours raising millions of dollars so that kids who couldn't walk could go there and get the best possible medical care ever. My wife flew in a plane with volunteer pilots through something called Angel Flight so we didn't have to drive seven hours each way every week with volunteer pilots, flew to Tampa, walked by that statue, Every, every other week for months, we never received a bill for a single dollar. Because, and all of that was done by a generation of men and women who, who served. Those men didn't just sit at home and watch television or drink. They went out and they, had a, they, they took on some passion— some problem. They couldn't be, they couldn't take on every problem. They just saw in the 40s, in 20s and 30s and 40s, that lots of kids had polio. Those kids needed crutches. Some families couldn't even afford crutches. So they started with that. And by the time we got to 203 in 2004, they were doing the most advanced lower extremity work on the planet for kids that the fancy hospitals that could fix our NFL players' knees couldn't be bothered to deal with and do research on.
One of the things that I think sometimes people misunderstand when they come to Jesus, because Jesus gives freely. It's so easy to come to Jesus the Christ and think that we're consumers, especially when almost in every other situation of our life, we're consuming. I just flip through my phone. I buy this thing. I like go to Amazon. Oh, I want one of those. And I just, I buy, I buy, I take, I use, I use, I take, I eat, I sleep, I drink, I do, I act. More, more, me, me, you're irritating me, go away. And then Jesus says, I will give you. Right? Isaiah 55, God says, I'll give you food and drink the best without cost. I'll, I'll give you forgiveness. I will give you life. I will give you living water. I will give you the bread of life, right? We're like, that's great, Jesus. I mean, you're going to have to compete with all these other vendors. Uh, we don't discriminate. Um, but love, love the enthusiasm, right? If you can beat out all the other gods pursuing my attention, then maybe we'll pick you for something. We can have a six-month contract, right? But one of the things that we, we do not recognize is what the Bible says about us is not that we're wealthy— relative to Jesus' grace, but that we are sick, lost, filthy, rightly humiliated, and poor. We are lost and dead and starving, and God gives us everything we could ever require spiritually through the gracious gift of Jesus. He freely just gives it to us. And sometimes we think that it is sufficient to simply consume it and just say, okay, thanks. And the thing is, is that one of the things that people do not want to accept about grace is that grace is just as obligating. In fact, in some ways, it's more obligating than a contract. Do you understand? There's this verse that everybody seems like, everybody seems like John 3, 16. You know that verse? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. That one? That's really good, right? God gives, right? Oh, great. You can be a consumer. Okay, but stop. Then he says this. Right after that. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through the world he might be saved. And then in the very next verse it says this, that those who do not believe in this Christ or Son, whom he comes to, if they do not believe, they are, quote, it says this, condemned already because they haven't believed in God's one and only Son. You see, it was a really nice verse until that part. Right? Now, what does that even mean? Right? It literally says, Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world. And then it says literally in the next line, whether or not you're condemned comes down to whether or not you believe in that Jesus. I mean, that's not a literary contradiction. That feels like a logical one, right? Unless you recognize this. <clears throat> when you think in terms of what is actually good, what is actually righteous, grace is more obligating than even a contract. That if someone does something for you that you desperately needed, and they give it freely, you are, you are as obligated to respond graciously to it. And if you reject it, you despise it, you humiliate it, you commit an act against the gracious act. And the gracious act is meant to be transforming. If someone is loving towards you and you respond with irritation and hatred, that's morally blameworthy. You're, you're treating the thing that is most valuable like it's worthless, and you're enforcing on other people socially that it's worthless. 
right? And so when, when Jesus comes and gives people grace, his redemption is supposed to possess our hearts with a passion for redeeming things. When he brings us back into a real knowledge that we are created by him in his image, to do the kinds of work divine image bearers would do, that's supposed to awaken us to the fact that we want to be creative like we've been created. <clears throat> right, when we see that Jesus says, I didn't come to be served, right? He said, in, in Mark 10, 45, he said, I, I came to serve <clears throat> and to give my life as a ransom for many people. And he says that to his disciples. The reason he tells his disciples is so that they would be possessed by that passion. Not, the, the point of Mark 10, 45 is not that people say to Jesus, <clears throat> Jesus, that's so great you've come to serve. Can I have another banana? Like, great, keep it coming. That's not the point of grace. The point of grace is, like Jesus, remember Jesus says in Matthew, he sends out his disciples to cast out demons and to heal the sick and to preach the gospel. And then what he said, he says to them, he says, freely you have received, therefore freely consume. Right? Is that what he said? Is that what he said, right? He says, you've received all of this freely. Now what? Freely give, right? Like if I give one of my kids, like, like, I, I, like buy a, like we were in, we were coming home from Mexico for this family vacation and to buy a chocolate bar, it's $18, okay? You had to buy water, right? It was, it was crazy. Anyway, but if I, I went and I bought one of my kids a, a bag of chips, right? And I gave that bag of chips to one of my kids. I bought the biggest bag, right? And I said, here you go. I got this for you. And then two minutes later, what was I listening to? My kids arguing about whether any of my other kids could have any of the chips in that bag. How did I feel about that? Did I say, well, you know, I'll just have to buy lots more bags of chips. No, I was offended. I was like, I bought you the biggest bag of chips. You can't just voluntarily share with your brother or your sister, right? I was angry. Why? Why? Because I gave it freely. I didn't, I didn't make them pay for it. I paid the exorbitant amount. I gave them the chips that they loved. And then they were, that, that kid was like, these are all mine. You know, I'm just like, what is going on? Like, don't you see that grace begets grace? Otherwise, it's sin. And one of the greatest sins is for grace to not change you. That's why Christians can say at the same time, you cannot be saved by your works, and you cannot be saved without works. And that's not a contradiction at all. Because we are saved by grace completely. It is completely the free gift of God. And if grace saves, grace begets grace. And when grace changes you, when you, the free generosity of God affects you, that generosity flows through you through all the dynamics of work that God does. Redeeming and creating and serving and rescuing and reconciling. It flows out of us. We have a passion for it. The reason, friends, we waste all of our time is because we have lost our sense of purpose. I could quote you a thousand statistics about how we're all using our time. Why does it matter if your time doesn't have a purpose and if you don't have a passion for that purpose? I mean, what's wrong with playing 12 hours of video games? Or flipping through social media and like doing little like pictures of you in like a, a mouse hat? Who cares? We're all just waiting to die. 
Right? It's, you see, it's only if you believe that you are sowing and reaping your time for deep and meaningful and eternal purposes. And you can plant it and you can sow it for death and you'll reap it. Or you can sow it for literally eternal life and everlasting significance. And you will reap a harvest if in time, in these moments when we're living, we don't give up. Okay, we need to keep going. Therefore, what the grace of God is encouraging us is to not just ask the question, like, what am I saved from? We're saved from sin and death and hell and the penalties of those things and the brokenness and the slavery of sin. And then when you walk out of that prison cell and you recognize what God has saved you from and, and your eyes finally adjust to the light, one of the next questions that, like, every person who comes out of incarceration, what do they all have to ask themselves? The minute they walk out of the doors, whether there's somebody there to pick them up or not, what's the first question they have to ask themselves? What am I going to do now? And when Jesus saves us, one of the questions we have to ask is not just what are we saved from? We need to always remember that and be going back to it so that we're operating out of graciousness. But the next question we have to ask is what are we saved for? God didn't just save us as like snow globes from his rescue vacations that he puts like on a shelf and he's like, look at all my little snow globes. Right? You're, you're not like a—you're not a decoration in your salvation. You are an operational image bearer. You are a—to quote Jesus in one of the passages we read in John, a God, small g, that is capable of doing acts in the image of God. The sorts of acts that Jesus does. Jesus, in perfect humanity, says, I'm always doing the work my Father is doing. I look and see what he's doing, and then I do it. Jesus, as the perfect human, was filled with passion to see what God would want done and to do it with his hands and feet and energy and wisdom. And that's what he spent his time doing. That's what he cared about. And you see, one of the reasons why this is so important is um, some of the old cliches about things like service that we use in a worldly sort of way, they're not true anymore. Right? Aristotle once said, people are moral if we instill in them just sentiments preferably before the age of seven, right? We order their loves, and then they will know what is just and act justly. We used to say to people, hey, listen, you know what? If you serve people, you'll feel what? You'll feel good. It feels good to serve people. Have you taken a teenager who's been able to live a consuming life with their little devices for the last five to six years? Have you taken them to serve others recently? How did that go? Did they seem to enjoy it? Did they seem to be like, you know what, Dad, you're so right. I had such a great time going to those, talk with those shut-ins that like smelled like some kind of elixir, you know, like that was so great. Or yeah, like it was so fun cooking that food with you and taking it to that family who just had a baby. It was so great. I, it was so worth not playing nine rounds of that video game that I was playing with my friends that you interrupted, right? Is that what they do? Because it's not what they do. It's not what they do. Because there was a time when you could take people who had been inculcated with good sentiments and you could take them out of something they were caught up in and they would experience real life and actually serving something, somebody else and it got them out of themselves for a moment and they experienced the freedom of the peace of humility and they recognized that they enjoyed it and it worked pretty well. But that's because they had certain sentiments that they weren't just a consumer already inculcated in their hearts. 
Those sentiments are increasingly being completely lost even before the age of seven. People are increasingly incapable of having those deeper realities. One of the things I hear as much from, from anybody is I've, I hear this a lot from people between 12 and 25. And I'll have a conversation, conversation with them about Jesus. Sometimes it's their first conversation about Jesus. And you know what I hear so way more than I used to 15 years ago? They say two things. One, I've never had a conversation like this before. And two, I don't know anybody my age I could have this conversation with. That is, part of the reality of us getting caught up, and I'll talk about this more in the Formation Week, getting caught up in some of these really super vacuous, sensuous, just kind of stuff flitting before eyes. Who's up? Who's down? Who won? Who lost? Who's going to get percentage points for this? And are we going to get that? What's fashionable? Blah, blah, blah. All these incredibly shallow things. We actually lose our capacity and any interest in deeper, meaningful, more transcendental things. And what that means is we are literally making ourselves neurologically incapable of basic human spirituality. Do you understand that the demonic plan for the human person to be completely separated from God is not just to argue against the resurrection of Jesus. It's actually to form you in ways you don't even understand that are happening so that you are literally incapable of the most basic human functions necessary to know God. To actually strip you of your created humanity so that you literally can't be spiritual. So that even if you really try, everything in your body, habits, and abilities are all set against you as much as possible. Do you see that? Right? The apostle says, look, all of this thing, if we talk about sowing and reaping, he says, look, what does that mean? Right? Some of it means our spirituality. Are we seeking to become like Jesus? Right? If we sow to the flesh, we're going to reap death. If we sow to the spirit. But what does sowing to the spirit mean? Does it mean like learning to be more like Jesus? Yes. But specifically, actively. Right? He says, let us not become weary in doing good. Right? What does that mean? What he means is, is that we should be employing ourselves, the work of our hands, the work of our life, the work of our attention, is to find some good to do and do it. That's the main work of our lives. That's, and so he says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everybody, especially those who belong to the family of believers, right? So he's like, look, you're just going to be out there in your life, walking around, and basically what we do as Christians is we are just constantly looking for some good to do and to do it, no matter who they are. Even our enemies, our neighbors, people, people that don't like us, doesn't matter. We're just looking for any good to do. Runaway shopping cart, stray puppies, older people carrying groceries. Like what? Doesn't matter. Anything. Holding a door, saying hello, seeing somebody that nobody sees. Anything works. Or something more meaningful. Right? But doing good, that's what our time is for. One of the greatest temptations for people who believe in Jesus, particularly in this particular climate, is essentially, and this has always been true, I think that it feels more true now. That is to believe that giving our life for the life of the world won't be worth it. That it won't make a difference. That we won't be eternally happy. That we'll actually have wasted our life trying to do good because there is no good to do. The fear that living for God's purpose keeps us from being happy living for our own purpose, and that seeking his kingdom will really just put us last. I think that's the temptation that people have. And so therefore, doing what pleases us is a, as good a second option as we can come up with, right? If we think about the end of this 
great salvation passage in Ephesians 2, where God talks about how we were like lost and dead in sin, and how because of the grace of God, through Jesus the Christ, he saved us from our sins. It ends with this verse. He says, for it's by grace you've been saved. That is the generosity of God. Through faith, this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, right? So he's like, you're not saved by works. You can't boast to God about your salvation because you didn't get saved through anything you did. But then he says this, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Which means, though we could never be saved by works, and we're never going to be able to feel good about ourselves toward God because of what we do, he says, he says that God crafts us for good works. Like, he has literally shaped us in his own image to do good works. Through Jesus, he's reclaimed that craftsmanship in us. We took his craftsmanship made for, good, for doing good, and we used it for evil. We used it for self-serving and sinful purposes until he turned us around. And when Jesus came into our lives and called us to himself, he reclaimed his operational actor that he made us capable of doing good works. He reclaimed what he made us for, right? And then it says, God has actually prepared good works for you. Like, you're going to do something. Like, my wife, for example, cooked for two people yesterday, right? This one family that just had a baby that's been struggling. She cooked for them yesterday, okay, right? Like, that's a real mundane thing. Right? We, she went out, she got some chicken, and a couple things of sauce, and we cooked, right? What the Apostle Paul is saying is, in eternity past, God the Father reckoned that act to be, be laid at my own wife's feet for her to do for the gracious love and support of another person who belonged to him as an act of love from himself to them that he sees and loves them at the hands of her. That she should do his work. Right? And that's what that chicken meant. Do you understand? And the, the understanding how grace is meant to transform, how we look at everything, and what our time is for, is rooted in the reality that we, who have this little bit of time, are the workmanship of God himself, reclaimed in Jesus to do the reworking of redemption in his creation. He is laid in his own mind and providence all kinds of different tasks of good that if you look for, you can find and do before you that he has elected and chosen you for, and in doing them, you do his work and please him. Like it says in Romans 12, 1, his good, you will do. If we give our bodies as living sacrifices with our time, we will do his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And it doesn't just please him. It ends up pleasing us, right? It's important to recognize too, though, that that pursuit of godliness, to do what God has made us to do, it doesn't just have two—like, sometimes we think there's two options. One is you can seek to be a protector and a provider, a creator, a redeemer, somebody who does the good against whatever ever evil we find, and to do it graciously. Or you're going to be a, a, a pillager and a pirate. You're going to just—you're going you're to eat off the land where other people are growing. And those are the two options. And generally speaking, what I would say, especially for men, but I think this is true for everybody, you're going to be one of those two things. But one of the things that the technopoly has done is it's created a very broad third category in a way, right? And that is the category of the person who's just languishing in the lostness of nothing, right? And this is a very old category. This didn't start with like Instagram. So in 700 BC, right, Homer wrote the Odyssey. And after 20 years of war, Odysseus is trying to go home, and the gods don't want him to go home, and so they trap him on this island with this nymph, Calypso, who is the, like the perfect woman 
let's say romantically speaking, okay? And so they have everything they need on this island. They have the nectar of the gods, they have grapes, they have food, and he has unlimited, let's just call it access, to the perfect demigod woman, right? But she's miserable because every day he sits out and he looks out at the sea towards Ithaca, his home, where his family is, where his kingdom is, that he has responsibility for. He, don't know, he doesn't know what's happened to his son. He doesn't know what's happened to his wife. And he feels that pang of responsibility, that, that purpose in his heart that he's not supposed to just live here. It could have been a heaven in a way, an empty and shallow one. But he, he'd sit, and ultimately, the gods let him go, and Calypso lets him go. Back to the sea that will kill him, likely. Right? And one of the islands he hits along the way, so you can think of the island of Calypso as the privileged place of doing nothing. He was a king with a demigod, drinking the nectar of the gods. Think of like a wealthy person who has everything that they need, in Luke's gospel, he says, I, I brought in all this money. I got all this money. I'm just going to build bigger barns, bigger houses, leather-covered seats, beautiful moon roofs. We're going to go on nice vacations. And God says, okay, you're done with your life. I'm going to kill you. And the guy dies that night. When you give up your stewardship, you've given up your life. Whether you die that night or later, it doesn't matter. You're just living with Calypso. But then later as he comes home, there's also this sort of there's the nothingness of like lostness because you don't think there's anything better. You don't actually think you have any purpose. And, and that's connected to this island of the lotus eaters, right? They come and there's, they just eat this flower and the flower just makes them forget how meaningful their life, meaningless their life is. Whether your life is so meaningful you want to avoid it or whether your life seems so meaningless that you want to forget it, right? To be a hero, even in the pagan tales, you had to transcend the willingness to forget or the willingness to just be pleased. And you had to figure out what your life was for and what were your real responsibilities and what were you called to and what's the craftsmanship that you were made with that you were to bring into the world. And then you needed to do it. You needed to brave the oceans even if you were going to be devoured a thousand ways. Does that make sense? When you think about our lives together in our country right now with how the technopoly is functioning, we're on our screens and not for work seven hours a day on average, right? And the younger you are, the higher that number goes up because it's an average. We spend about an hour and a half on video games. That is a weird number because if you're a gamer, it's a lot more. And if you're not a gamer, it's zero. You know what I mean? Um, pretty much across the board, two hours and three minutes on social media. That's even with older people who are like scrolling through Facebook for six hours a day, right? But younger people too with, with their— the, the majority of that is Instagram and TikTok, obviously, and Snapchat. Um, two to four hours, that's kids from two to four years old on screens. That feels crazy. Or should probably. If your income in your home is less than $35,000, you just add two hours to all of this stuff. Which means that this dynamic is increasing income and future inequalities in very major ways. The technopoly is spreading us apart more. Because the disadvantage of this replacing things like homework and study groups and mentoring is dramatic, right? Now, one of the things we need to recognize is this. For the average American person, and it's not better in the church for the most part, you know a workday is about eight hours? Do you realize that we're putting screens before our faces every day, on average in America, for a workday? 
for a work day. Think about that for a second. Is it any wonder you like can't get your laundry changed around or like get, so many people just, they can't do the basic things in their life. They're like, I just don't have any time. It's like, well, sort of. I mean, imagine what this means to God, right? Your body is made up of these billions of cells. You have this incredible capacity. You're the most advanced creature that we know of in the universe. You have the ability to understand moral structures and to know God himself. There's all these things that have been put before you to do. All these different ways you can use your time. Right? And what, and what, are, we, what are we doing? Right? All right, let me, let me end with— um, I don't have time for that or that. Okay. I want to give you like a couple practical things really quick, right? Here are some practical things you can do just to start with, right? One is, is that you can reckon with the whole question of purpose, right? If you don't believe you have a God-given purpose and you don't know what it is, and you don't begin to take pleasure in applying it, then who cares what you do with your time, right? You might as well just use it on a screen. At least you're not robbing a bank, right? The second is, is that you need to find ferocity. These things are designed to hack you as a person and to involuntarily take control of your mind and get you to do what they want you to do, whether you want to or not, okay? Like, you, you, I'll get into this a little bit more when we get to formation, but like these technologies are not designed to work with you. Do you understand? And so if you want to get free of their control of you, you have to find the kind of ferocity that can crucify the flesh that wants these things so badly which is you need to be able to pound stakes into flesh and get blood on your face. Like, you need to be so serious about it that you're willing to do anything. And that if you have to flush your phone down the toilet to get free, you're going to do it. Do you understand? The third thing is, is that you have to properly devalue the virtual. The virtual is not real. There are some things about it that are kind of real. None of them are as real as the real. We—it is true that, there, that not all screen time is created equal. You're FaceTiming with a friend in another state. That's not the same thing as flipping through joke memes on, t- on TikTok. Their effect on you is very different. You could like—you could have a prayer time with a mentor. I know a pastor in town who he gets online at midnight with a hundred minority pastors around the country, and they pray for an hour and a half at midnight. And they do it over Zoom. That's screen time. Right? I think that's probably building their faith and their, and their capacity for good works and their life in the Spirit, right? So it's, it's not all the same, but we love to use that as, as an excuse. And if we don't decide what the virtual is, like, I, like I, I, there's this video game I was playing with Jude, and then he was so much better than me that he wouldn't even play with me, which I understand. I understand. And I still would like, I still like to play it, right? Because it's fun to, like, know whether you're good at something or not every three minutes, right? And, like, it's just fun to do. And then, like, you know, two hours would pass of my life, and I hadn't—you know, my wife asked me to fix something. She's like, do you have to turn a screwdriver six times, and I couldn't get it done, right? And I, I had to just be like, what am I doing? This isn't anything, right? And you have, to, you have to make that happen in your head so much that you really believe it, because otherwise you'll never get free. Four is you've got to delink the, delete the junk food. There are some apps and technologies that you're using that ha- have no benefit to you. It's not a question of getting them under control. They do not benefit you in any way. You just need to delete them, okay? Delete all of your social media accounts. If you use social media on your phone, do it through the web browser. You'll hate it. It'll be fantastic, okay? 
or only do it on your desktop. Any app where you're rating stuff by flipping and whatever, delete it from your, delete it from everything. If you have a dating app, turn off all the notifications, get it off your main screens, and go to it no more than twice a day. More, better like twice a week would be better. And then just, just put it in your profile. I don't check this often. I'm looking to live in real life. I'm just using this technology to find new people. Okay? You just gotta, you gotta get rid of it, or you will go back to it. My phone right now, it's been on grayscale for like two weeks. Shopping is no fun, because you can't tell what hardly anything really it looks like. Social media is so dull. I don't even like looking at my texting app, right? And if you're like, Nick, I just have to have color sometimes, you can actually go in and set it so that you have the little man down here, so that you can turn it back and forth at the touch of a button. There's, there's things that they put in there so that when you accuse the tech companies, what are you doing? They're like, we did all these things for you. They're just really hard to find. You have to like go online and look at tutorials and find them. They're there. You turn your phone on grayscale, it becomes like, like my face says to me, I don't want to look at this, put it away. Rather than, let's look at it more. It's amazing how driven we are by vibrant colors. And if you shut the colors off, it shuts off some of the hooks, right? Um, Predecision and accountability. Decide beforehand when you're not doing it. Like, have a day of fasting and prayer with no electronics and decide what you really want your life to be like and choose that and write it down and tell people. Predecision and accountability can help with this, right? Choose what you're going to positively do. What are you going to do? What good works are you going to choose instead of those things, right? Instead of doing a first-person shooter game, go and take jujitsu. Like, at least do something in real life, even if it's not a good work. You'll bump into people who don't know Jesus, and then maybe you'll have an opportunity for ministry, right? Cultivate better loves. I'm not going to spend time on that right now. We'll do that in week five. And love your liberator and hate your captor. Jesus is your liberator from this. These things are not your freedom. They're not your life. They're not saving you. They're not helping you. They are a cheap counterfeit of reality. And they're offering you something that is, it's a, it's a binge and a hangover. And you're going to wake up and realize that your life has gone away, and you're not good at anything, and you don't care about anybody, and nobody cares about you. Because you know how you end up in a situation where people care about you? You care about people. And the level at which I talk to people now, they're like, nobody actually cares about me. Like, I am a, I am a means to an end for everybody in my life. And if I like have to talk about like I'm hurt or something, it's like an irritation that somebody has to slow down. I'm like, I'm like a speed bump to them. Jesus has made us. We can live in this technological world. We can even use a lot of these tools and we can maintain our freedom. We can become bigger than these things. We can understand how they manipulate us and we can use them through our good, through asceticism and intentionalism, become more efficient, capable of doing things we never could have done before, but without losing our very consciousness, our soul, our life, and wasting a whole working day's worth of time every day. Because God starts off the Bible with, work six days. Work six days. Do much productive work, and then rest. And then your rest will be wholesome, right? You're like, Nick, can I look at my phone? G.K. Chesterton once said this, let a man walk 15 miles on a hot summer day in England on its dusty roads, and then they will immediately know why man invented beer. <laughs> right? Work. 
do good. And then your rest will be sweet, whatever you do. God invented leisure too. In 1 Thessalonians, he said, everything is created for our enjoyment. God is no slave master, but he does good and he made us to do good. And that is what our lives are for. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, please help us to be angry in the right way, be hopeful in the right way, be ferocious in the right ways. And to desire so much to embrace a life where we know we're your workmanship. That we sow to do good works to everybody that we come in contact with, knowing that that is a planting to you and that you will cause it to grow into something beautiful, whether it's what eternal goods and eternal rewards or present goods or present joys it might include, we don't totally know. But we know that you make grow the good seeds that we plant. Help us to trust you. Help us to trust you and help us to turn stuff off and help us to give you our attention and help us to give you our time. In Jesus' name.